if we can lift our heads above the agonies of the conflicts in the world. There are larger issues at stake in them, though in the end they all amount to human suffering of the nature we discussed last week with Mike Seawright from the New Zealand charity Relief Aid. Two of the team's brave aid workers distributing food and water in Gaza were killed at the end of a day doing that. And tragically and eerily, the team in Gaza had envisaged precisely that outcome. New Zealander Dr Jack Watling is joining us on prospects in the Middle East, Ukraine and the South China Sea. Jack is the Senior Research Fellow for Land Warfare at the Royal United Services Institute, RUSI, the world's oldest and the UK's leading defence and security think tank. And he's a global fellow at the Wilson Centre in the US. He's won international media awards for his analysis. And he's spent periods of time since... Uh, The Ukraine war began with the armed forces there. He also spends time with both the British military and the U.S. Marine Corps. Now he's written a book, The Arms of the Future, Technology and Close Combat in the 21st Century. Jack, kia ora. Thank you for joining us. It's good to be back with you, Jim. Uh, We could discuss things like sensor-fused munitions and laser vibrometers, which most of us don't understand. There's enormous detail in this book on weaponry, and I know also that you have operated some of the new weaponry yourself. But what essential equations are being changed in modern warfare, such as we see on the Ukraine battlefield or or in Gaza, for example? So if we think about war since... 1936 really it has revolved around a process and the process for land warfare has been that you try and achieve surprise uh, by being somewhere that the adversary doesn't expect that allows you to concentrate to have more troops there than the enemy Uh, you then maneuver through them uh, past them um, and that means that you cut their lines of communication their logistics And warfare has usually been assumed to be happening in a field, right, essentially. Uh, And the arguments that I make are that, firstly, everyone can see everything at this point. Uh, The sensors mean that it is very, very difficult to achieve surprise. Uh, Secondly, the accuracy of fires of artillery means that whoever concentrates first actually is the one that is probably going to lose. So the fight becomes about forcing the other side to concentrate. Thirdly, that I don't need to get past you to attack your logistics anymore because the number of long-range systems that I have and the ability to see your logistics means I can go after it right from the beginning. And then finally, that uh, essentially a lot of fighting now is going to happen in cities, dense, messy urban environments, because the side that loses that sensor battle that can't see as well will need to preserve themselves by retreating into that complex terrain where they can hide that sensor fight gaza came immediately to mind before we get to that though the real future now then of war is what it's electronic warfare teams and data science teams and that kind of warfare Well, I think one of the problems with people who write about the future of war is that there is a real tendency to take new technology and then to run away with it. That is to extrapolate what that new technology means, independent of how everything else might evolve. And that's kind of how you get to these narratives that everything is going to be drones or uh, everything is going to be cyber warfare. The reality is that 
these things interact with very traditional types of fighting, uh, with armored warfare, with you know, air defense and, and the attack of aircraft and so on. And so in the book, a lot of what I'm outlining is how these things are organized together and how they impact each other. It's not about saying, oh, warfare is now just software engineers. But if you don't have software engineers in your force, then what you find is that your UAVs, a lot of your radar systems, they quickly become less and less effective over time because the adversary can adapt how they are attacking them. And when they do that adaptation, they start gaining the advantage. Uh, and so most militaries don't have that capability. They don't have the ability to rewrite software on their UAVs in real time. They need to get companies in to do that. Um, and of course, there are difficulties in bringing companies onto the battlefield um, because you don't have the same control over them that you do with soldiers. Yes. Yes, in all the ways we popularly envisage future warfare, there is a strong element of science fiction, isn't there? Armies of robots battling one another, Terminator style. And speaking of the drones, you know, American carrier groups being destroyed by gigantic swarms of UAVs, unmanned aerial vehicles, you know, the death of a thousand cuts. How much of that posited future is likely? Because I noticed that aircraft carriers, contrary to what we think perhaps, are still fully in fashion. Why? Lots of those visions of swarms of UAVs, drones, um, break the rules of physics. And, and they do that because what you end up with is, is the idea that something very, very small is traveling fast a long way with a very complex computer on it uh, and is going to supposedly do immense damage to a large object. Um, and you can't really have all of those attributes. If you have a lot of processing power uh, and you have something with, that is uh, fast and long range, it's going to be big. It's going to be expensive. Um, it's going to need some pretty good sensors that are not things you can afford to throw away. And all of a sudden, actually, you can't have many of them. Um, alternatively, if you want something that is cheap and you can throw it away and, you know, either it's going to behave in a very simple way, like a, a Shahid 136 in Ukraine, which is long ranged, has big explosive payload, but it just goes to one place. You can't target a ship with that because the ship's moving. Um, or you could have something that is quite clever, but because it needs a big computer, it drains its battery very quickly and it's going to be quite short ranged. And then you can maybe have lots of them, but they're not going after a ship. Um, and what, what ships are able to do is remain at sea, cover very significant distances and generate aircraft that can drop very, very significantly uh, heavy volumes of firepower, really large explosives, onto objects at reach um, and carry complex sensors and so on. Um, and so everyone's still trying to build aircraft carriers because it means that they can reach out and deliver that kind of effect a long way away, um, which is pretty difficult to do with drones. So... Um, the, the problem with a lot of science fiction is that you can use the fiction element to avoid having to make any trade-off decisions, right? Any to, to, to deal with any of the limitations that physics imposes on how these systems work. Doesn't mean those systems aren't useful. Doesn't mean they won't be on the future battlefield and we won't see drones on aircraft carriers. Um, early warning radar, for example, I suspect in the future 
will be UAVs, drones, uh, will be carrying them rather than uh, people, crewed aircraft, because it's just dead weight to have the air crew on there. Mm. Um, but that doesn't mean that everything is going to turn into UAVs. The Arms of the Future is the book, and Dr. Jack Watling is with us. ISR, which was a new term on me, the ability to locate targets hitherto concealed. We know that even in New Zealand, rifle shooters can now use long-range thermal imaging to locate rabbits hidden in bushes, which they never used to be able to see. And I've heard you talk about how it's hard to hide in war now. You can dig a hole, which is what Hamas have done in Gaza with their tunnels, but uh, it's not very useful while you're in the hole and you've got to come out of it. I heard you say that. So we're seeing that in Gaza now as the fighting becomes more close quarters, aren't we? Absolutely. Uh, Gaza is precisely what happens when one military doesn't have the ability to blind the enemy, to fight their senses, uh, and therefore the other side gains sensor dominance. In this case, the Israelis have sensor dominance over Hamas. Hamas therefore struggles to move, um, except where it has dug all of these tunnels underground. And it becomes uh, a problem that the Israelis can isolate and then attack. But Hamas has retreated into that dense urban terrain because the number of underground, the amount of underground infrastructure provides them with some level of ambiguity. Um, the fact that they don't have any air defenses means that the Israeli military is able to essentially kill them in place when they find them because Hamas is not able to prevent those crewed aircraft with very, very large munitions, um, dropping them on their positions whenever they are found. And so, you know, the Israelis are not having too much difficulty, to be honest, um, killing Hamas militants. However, cities are messy places. They are full of civilians. The humanitarian consequences of dropping those munitions in an urban space are severe. And so Hamas is trying to use the civilian impact of where they are drawing the Israelis into fight to protect themselves by uh, damaging Israel's reputation with the international community. Um, and, you know, your ability to fight among people is something that is you know critical to militaries retaining a license to operate the the permission to operate politically uh, in the future because fighting is going to happen in these dense urban spaces yeah and that's a very interesting point and that's why the, <clears throat> an invasion of gaza was never going to be a series of surgical strikes as we were told and there's uh, outrage over the killing of non-combatants. And we maybe think back to previous wars like the British carpet bombing Dresden and the horrible civilian toll. So why in this era, Jack, should there still be such imprecision in involving civilians? I mean, why should Israel have to destroy half the houses in Gaza? Um, I mean, it's worth noting this is very similar to what... The international coalition did in Raqqa or Mosul uh, in terms of outcome. However, those campaigns were run much slower um, and there was a protracted attempt to extract civilians. The Israelis are having to do this quickly because they, they view themselves having a limited political window to operate in 
but also because the longer that they don't, the more rockets that can get launched. The more rockets that get launched, the more Iron Dome interceptors are expended, and therefore the Israeli ability to defend their own civilians against Hezbollah and Iran, other threats to their north, um, diminishes. And so they feel they need to operate fast. Um, and the the problem is that, let's say, uh, they are, they pick up some Hamas fighters talking to one another in a building through acoustic detection, uh, radio communications intercept, whatever it is. Um, they found them, but they don't pick up the civilians who are in the basement, hiding, uh, not making a huge amount of noise, trying to sleep, um, who are also in that building. And that's one issue. The second issue is, if they're in the center of a building, uh, a small precise munition actually won't kill them. It will damage the outside of the building. It might damage a room if you put it through a window. Um, the final issue is that the number of fighters that they are engaging because they are they are trying to destroy Hamas means that they don't have the depth of precision munitions, which are very expensive, to be able to use those to engage all of these targets. Um, and so instead what they are doing is they are dropping a very heavy explosive, 1,000-pound bomb or something, onto the building uh, and collapsing it on the fighters. The consequence of that is that the civilians in that building are also killed. An absence of evidence in the way that you apply international law um, to strikes and targeting is kind of considered uh, evidence of absence, which isn't the case. But it means that it's not put on the scales and weighed against, right? In, in proportionality terms, if you know there are civilians there, then it affects the proportionality equation. If you don't, then usually you are able to act. Uh, and that means that we see strikes going in, even when actually that means quite a lot of civilians end up dying. Yeah, and therein lies the tragedy. So with the upside-down red triangle you know, becoming ubiquitous in response to the Gaza invasion and world opinion polarised to such an extent. Do you, Jack, do you see a likelihood of a serious enlarging of the conflict with Israel fighting, not just skirmishing on two or more fronts and maybe the US getting involved? Uh, it's an entirely plausible scenario that we see uh, a flare-up of violence in the West Bank um, not not least because settlers and others uh, on the Israeli side are trying to use this opportunity to displace Palestinians there by going and attacking them. Um, and if that leads to a backlash, the military, you know, the IDF gets more involved in the West Bank. You could very easily see a situation where, yes, it escalates. Uh, Hezbollah intervenes. Iran starts using its proxies to strike from Syria. We're already seeing the Houthis in Yemen launch missiles at Israel, which are obviously traversing Saudi Arabia. Um, and so this is a very serious situation. Um, it's important that those actors are deterred from expanding the conflict, because if Hezbollah does that, Beirut, which is one of the you know, jewels of the Middle East, it's a, it's a massive city, um, and and the home of, of a huge number of people will start looking very similar to Gaza does now, right? And the the human tragedy that would unfold 
is is one that needs to be averted. So there is a lot of effort being put into trying to contain and manage the escalation that could come from this conflict. So Israel has the capability to strike Beirut in a similar way, even though it's going through you know munitions at a rate of knots, and you would assume that they've used you know most of their arsenal by now, surely. So that's wrong. Israel does have that military capability still, that extra capability. Israel has been holding back most of the kinds of munitions it would want to use in Lebanon. Um, it would need to conduct a deliberate destruction of enemy air defense campaign before it could operate against Beirut. Uh, so the campaign would look very different. It would be much higher risk. Um, but no, the Israelis are in a position to be able to uh, strike Lebanon very extensively if uh, Hezbollah escalates the conflict. Just changing the geography, you say in the book that tensions between China and the US have become acute you know, despite the visit of Xi Jinping to America. We've seen underwater sabotage in the Ukraine war. Uh, the sabotage of the Nord Stream pipeline. How difficult is it now, because you consider this, don't you, to to sever underwater cables between continents? And what happens if China does invade Taiwan and it destroys the semiconductor factories there? These are issues you raise. And a version of World War Three could still be fought, you would think, with catastrophic consequences without any bombs going off, Jack. Uh, absolutely. Um, I mean, for, for people's understanding... The global economy is currently based on computers. Um, High-end chips for computers are essentially manufactured in two places when we're talking about really high-end capabilities, Taiwan and uh, South Korea. Um, And there is only one company that makes all of the machines, the uh, tools that are used to manufacture those semiconductors, and it's a Dutch company. the costs of manufacturing this stuff is immense. I mean, a lot of investment required. So there is a lot of activity going on to try and replicate what is in Taiwan elsewhere, but uh, it's not easy to do. And so if a conflict breaks out and Taiwan is put under blockade, um, we've already seen the impact just from earthquakes, COVID, uh, recent recent uh, issues in supply chains, how quite limited disruption in Taiwan causes shivers throughout the entire global economy. Um, If there was a conflict, it would be catastrophic. And that's before we get into the impact on the banking system of China not buying US uh, debt or the US not honoring payments to China and so on. Um, And so when you look at undersea cables, 90% of data in the world, when people talk about the cloud, right? They talk about the cloud, and that sounds like something that is ethereal and uh, ubiquitously accessible and so on. Actually, the cloud is just someone else's computer, uh, and that data needs to get to you through physical infrastructure. 90% of it comes through undersea cables. If those are cut, damaged, um, then uh, the global economy grinds to a halt. Um, And so the protection of that infrastructure is a, a critical task for navies primarily. Um, but is is one where countries are holding a lot of mutual risk. The arms of the future, Jack Watling is with us. The US has begun to deploy its replicator and hellscape drone systems in our neck of the woods. 
How will they change the military landscape for us, Jack, as we try and maintain interoperability, I think they call it, with Australia? Because will New Zealand be inexorably drawn into this future? Uh, New Zealand has some decisions to make about how closely it stays with its allies. Um, It's worth noting that New Zealand is very exposed in its relationship with China to economic coercion. That is not something that the Australians are in a position uh, because China has tried to coerce Australia, but China needs what it gets from Australia in many ways more than Australia needs what it gets from China, uh, raw materials primarily. And so their coercion failed. Um, Whereas what New Zealand sells to China, China could potentially get from elsewhere. Uh, And so you have a, a problem whereby New Zealand is very reluctant to have a combative relationship. At the same time, um, China is increasingly threatening Taiwan. I was there a couple of weeks ago and, uh, you know, harassment, continual harassment of uh, Taiwan's air defense identification zone and territorial waters is ongoing. Um, We're seeing tensions rise between the Philippines and China with the Chinese ramming uh, and uh, conducting unsafe seamanship to harass uh, Philippine vessels. Um, and the US is anticipating that this may well lead to conflict. Um, and if that does happen, then the sea lanes of communication to New Zealand are going to be disrupted anyway. I think there's an interesting question, which is to what extent are New Zealand's allies prepared to offer New Zealand uh, economic opportunities that allow it to circumvent that risk um and to what extent is new zealand willing to look for those opportunities noting that it might well upset china if it does so well those economic opportunities have been looked for by new zealand uh elsewhere for a long time decades now and they've only been forthcoming to a limited extent haven't they uh the well, other- because it would require preferential access to other people's markets yeah. and protectionism starts to kick in right you yeah. end up making farmers in other countries rather unhappy. Yeah, sure. Another question is whether you need huge armies anymore. You know, when Napoleon purportedly said victory belongs to the big battalions, and in the book you call this mass, is it as true as it once was? I mean, does that mean that Taiwan with US weaponry could stave off an invasion from China? Uh, I mean, the question is how much weaponry, right? At the moment, definitely not. Uh, Taiwan would be absolutely dependent upon how many of its own people it could mobilize to to hold the chinese off its beaches um the the interesting question there's two elements to mass mass in terms of um numbers of people and then their concentration right how many people are actually in one place doing one thing and what we are increasingly seeing is that if you, if you deploy robots you often need more people not fewer to maintain them uh, they're complicated uh, but uh, those people are in a different place. They're further back. Uh, and so it's about a reallocation of where people are in the system rather than removing people from the system. Um, but in terms of the fighting edge, we are seeing you need a lot of people, but they are spread much further out. Uh, and so and they are they are enabled by a wider range of technologies. Um, and so you have a lower density of people forward, that doesn't necessarily mean that the army itself is smaller.
We've seen China occupying islands in the China Sea and turning them into bases. And the phrase you quote is crossing the water by feeling the stones. So experience would suggest the repatriation of Taiwan is inevitable or not, do you think? No, nothing's inevitable. Um, The line of thinking that assumed that the seizure of Ukraine by Russia was inevitable because of the disparity between the countries was you know, somewhat invalidated by uh, the Russians failing to take Kiev, right? Um, Large countries can make fairly catastrophic mistakes when it comes to conflict. Um, But the danger is very real. And Taiwan can't be resupplied in the event of war in the same way that Ukraine could. Uh, It has much greater exposure and vulnerability. And China has a much larger arsenal, both industrially and just already made, uh, than Russia did. And so uh, this is a a major threat. And the tension between the US and China, um, which is likely to dominate uh, the security environment over the next five, six years, um, and beyond that, but that's a particularly dangerous period, um, is one in which countries need to manage this risk. And you manage this risk by deterrence uh, and also diplomacy. Um, but you need to actively be involved in that process. In Ukraine, which is what we usually talk about with you, as winter looms, what's your appraisal of the state of that war, please? Uh, It's in a very difficult position for the Ukrainians at the moment because uh, they are going to face some material shortages uh, over the next few months, and their offensive operations were not successful over the summer. And so we are now in a race between the Russians and the Ukrainians to improve force quality. That is to expand the scale at which they can conduct offensive operations. Um, If the training pipeline allows the Ukrainians to do that first, they are likely to maintain the initiative in the spring. If the rate of Russian casualties comes down because of ammunition constraints for the Ukrainians um, and the Russians are able to train more troops first, then uh, we are likely to face quite a difficult 2024. Um, And so we are in this phase at the moment where there is still fairly intense fighting. The Ukrainians don't feel that they can stop conducting operations to to attack the Russians, because if they do, the pressure comes off and the Russians either train the units to attack or they lay more and more defences. But the Ukrainians nevertheless need to regenerate troops. So... um, it's going to be a difficult few months and there is still the looming threat of a very large arsenal that the Russians have built up of long-range strike systems that may once again go after Ukraine's critical national infrastructure. So everyone's waiting for some fairly heavy salvos of missiles to to start striking uh, Ukrainian cities. The Russians, as you forecast, and I suppose it's reminiscent of World War II in a way, have moved sufficiently onto a war footing to have started gaining advantage in areas they were on the back foot with hitherto, yeah? Yes, that's correct. Um, they've turned a corner industrially, and we are now seeing uh, a, a very substantial increase in the production of munitions and other material. Um, the shortages that the Russians were experiencing uh, have proven fairly time-limited. Um Training is the one area where the Russian military is not yet fully mobilizing. Um, 
we may see that that changes after the elections in Russia and when there is this political mandate. Um, but at the moment, uh, there is still the opportunity to uh, boost the Ukrainian armed forces and for them to make gains. Um, if that opportunity is not capitalized upon, then the disparity in military production between Russia and the West, noting that the West is not on a war footing, um, will significantly advantage Russia over time. Yeah, that's interesting, because we might assume differently. The Arms of the Future is the book, Technology and Close Combat in the 21st Century, and we've been talking with Dr. Jack Watling. Just a last question, because in your book you quote from a dialogue of Plato, uh, for what most humans call peace, he held to be only a name. In fact, for everyone, there always exists by nature an undeclared war among all cities. You must have thought about whether humans will eradicate war, and at the turn of the millennium, we wondered if they had, if we had. We don't wonder that anymore, Jack? No, I think eradication of war is is unlikely, but the form that conflict takes can be more or less severe. And the hope is that nuclear weapons, nuclear deterrence, means that major powers, Russia and the US, China and the US, and so on, don't go to war directly with one another. Um, if that is the case, then there are some fairly significant limits to how large wars can be. And a lot of the time, warfare will be displaced into covert activities, sabotage, proxy conflicts, etc., which, while very unpleasant, are usually geographically limited and also limited by scale. Um, and so I think we can, if deterrence is properly applied and if diplomacy is judiciously conducted, um, avoid catastrophic conflict as occurred in the earlier 20th century but the idea that you are going to get rid of it completely or that you shouldn't prepare for the risk of it um, is somewhat naive well done on the book and very good of you to give us your time uh, as always thanks so much jack good to be with you